Welcome everyone. Um, great opportunity to be talking to you today on this first of two podcasts, which are focusing on some work that has been undertaken uh, within NHS EI, focused on the effective management detection of deterioration of the pregnant mother. And I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, Professor Marion Knight and Peter Watkinson uh, to talk about some of the issues in relation to the way we've developed the new National Maternity Early Warning School tool, the MUSE tool. Um, and we're going to talk through a little bit of the background this morning and then we're going to have a little bit of discussion about some of the potential issues that we may face as we move forward. Um, so I'm going to leave each of them to introduce themselves as we go into the first set of questions. Um, I did want to make just a couple of quick sort of introduction points at this at this stage. We specifically have developed a MUSE tool and many other tools out there that are referred to as MEOWS tool, so which would be a modified obstetric early warning school tool, but we've very specifically developed a MUSE tool and that's in contrast to the um, other early warning score tools that are used in other areas of medicine. So when we talk today during the podcast, we'll be specifically talking about MUSE tools. Okay, well, we were going to start off with um, really giving you a bit of an outline about why we're here. Um, so we've been undertaking this development piece for nearly two years now. Um, we were very aware that uh, there was quite a wide range of um, tools available across the country for managing deterioration of the mother uh, when pregnant. And we were really quite keen to bring that together and develop a standardised tool for the whole country. Um, and that's really been the purpose of the work that we've undertaken so far. And really the purpose of this podcast and the other one that we're going to be recording as well is to try and give the people listening to this, our audience, a bit of an understanding about what we've been doing and why we've been doing it and some of the issues that sit behind that. So that's really why we hope you're listening and that you will enjoy uh, the discussions that we're going to have. So the first question I've, I was going to put to Marion um, and really sort of asking her what the scale of the issue was around, you know, the issues that we are facing and the problems that we have in relation to deterioration of the pregnant woman. So Marion, over to you. Uh, many thanks, Tony. Um, so uh, just by way of introduction, so I'm Marion Knight and one of uh, my roles is to lead the confidential inquiries into maternal deaths in the UK. So uh, to lead investigation of the care received by all women who die during or after pregnancy. Um, and what we know about maternal deaths is that there's been no change in the in the maternal mortality rate in the UK over the past 10 years. Um, and we know there are a number of important themes that, that we see time and time again when we're looking at maternal deaths. And not recognising maternal deterioration until it's too late is one of those themes. And that really emphasises the importance of, of this work to tackle it. And that's also coupled with a, a lack of understanding of what's normal in pregnancy and the tendency to normalise concerning vital signs uh, simply because we're pregnant. Um, and there's another problem, and that's uh, that people regularly use early warning scores that are not designed for use in the pregnant population. Uh, and as I'm sure we'll come on to later with Peter, um, that that's really important. Um, the other aspect of this work that, that we really need to think about um, is uh, we have concerning uh, disparities in maternal mortality rates between 
black women, Asian women and women of uh, mixed ethnicity compared to white women. Um, and we've seen a recurring theme again recently where, where recognition of deterioration, particularly in women with black and brown skin, uh, is problematic. Uh, and another reason why it's really important to think about uh, early warning scores and early recognition. Thanks, Marion. I think that's really useful for us to understand really what the current issues are and why this is an important area for us to be focusing on. Are you able to expand a little bit on some of the findings from uh, the previous reports that you've published through the Embrace work in relation or any of the sort of specific pertinent issues that focus on deterioration? So I, th I think probably the easiest way to illustrate it is 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 with with a couple of, uh, of vignettes of of women's uh, stories. So uh, one uh, more recent example from the COVID pandemic, and this was uh, specifically this was an ethnic minority woman who was admitted to the emergency department. Um, she had a three day history of shortness of breath and a high temperature. Um, on arrival. Uh, again, she had a, one of these non-maternity warning scores uh, used and a, a MUSE uh, maternity um, early warning score wasn't calculated. Um, she had a very high respiratory rate uh, of over 40 um, and a relatively low oxygenation saturation rate, which was 92%. Um, but that, the severity of that wasn't recognised and so she didn't receive um, early treatments with uh, steroids which we know are helpful um, and particularly concerningly it was repeatedly documented that she didn't look sick even though uh, even using the the wrong early warning score tool uh, the, the scores were relatively high and sadly she deteriorated overnight on the wards uh, and only at that point was was her the, the, the critical nature of her illness recognized uh, and at which point she she went to the critical care unit um, but sadly uh, she died uh, shortly later um, it's not just women who die we see that we see this as a concern because um, uh, the the confidential inquiry also investigates uh, women who have severe morbidity or severe uh, uh, pregnancy complications but survive and for example from one of our uh, investigations of women who had severe hemorrhage uh, a woman who uh, uh, had a, a second stage cesarean section um, at the time they were uh, aware that there was a, a right an, uh, an angle tear um, at cesarean section which uh, the uh, registrar concern thought uh, uh, had been repaired. So the woman then uh, left theatre, went to recovery. Um, and over that uh, time, uh, the, the, her deterioration was not recognised. She actually had a, a significant concealed hemorrhage, uh, which was only noted several hours later uh, when she returned to theatre. In total, um, she lost over 15 litres of blood, uh, required more than 20 units of, of red cells uh, and uh, also had to have a hysterectomy. So obviously significant morbidity that potentially may have been preventable if her deterioration had been recognised more uh, earlier. Thank you. I mean, I, I mean, both of those cases sort of emphasise some of the key issues that we would all recognise as clinicians. Um, and I think certainly allows us to 
think about some of the key concepts that we're trying to achieve through the development of this tool and the pathway, you know, one being that we need to make sure we have a tool that can follow the woman when she's pregnant from the point of conception right through till a month after delivery, which is what we've been able to develop. So it will follow her regardless of where she is in the hospital, which I think is, is critical. And I think the other point that you made very neatly with those two um, vignettes is really this allows us to make an objective assessment of any change in the woman's physiology. So it allows us to detect deterioration early. And I think fundamentally we're moving from the point where we have a, a process that, that identifies abnormality that requires treatment and moving upstream of this so that we're able to intervene with deterioration earlier in, in that clinical pathway. And therefore the rescuing process should be less dramatic. So I, I think hopefully, you know, we can address how we're going to do that as we go through this. But those are really useful, useful um, vignettes and cases to talk about. Peter, could I turn to you now and just sort of maybe give an outline uh, about what the sort of the evidence tells us about the previous issues that we've had with the current tools and pathways that are that are in use in this area, just to sort of orientate us. Thank you, Tony. I'm Peter Watkinson. I am an intensive care consultant for the majority of my working life, but have been exposed repeatedly to women whose deterioration was not picked up until late, and that led to a research interest in picking up deteriorating women early, and particularly to running a study called the 4P or Pregnancy Physiology Pattern Prediction Study, which was a multi-centre UK study collecting physiological information on pregnant women, which underpins some of what we'll talk about later. The current early warning systems for pregnant women in the UK and elsewhere are known when both we and others assess them to be highly varied between hospitals and institutions. That means they use different vital sign thresholds to alert deteriorating women, which is obviously concerning because you would hope that there was an optimal threshold for each of those vital signs. In particular, some of those vital sign thresholds are quite extreme and that leads, as you were alluding to earlier, to very late warning of deterioration and therefore quite stressful and difficult rescue attempts. Thank you. That's, um, I think the variation is something that we're very cognizant of and I, I'm aware that some of the publications there showed a huge variation and I know you've presented this work before that shows not only that the range of different uh, physiological parameters but also th as in the number of them that are included in the score but also the varying ranges between what would be classed as normal and abnormal. So I think the opportunity to standardise that I think is going to be something that hopefully the clinical community would welcome. Um, when we're thinking about that, could you talk a little bit more, because you mentioned the 4P study, um, really sort of bringing forward the basis for this physiological data and how that is unusual, because we've not had this before, um, and the fact that we're moving away from the standardised processes that are in other scores, which might just involve the basis of having one or two abnormal yellow or red scores, moving to a total score, and, and then also maybe introduce the idea that we've got this graduated escalation opportunity now, rather than it just being escalate or not escalate. So I appreciate I'm giving you three things to talk about there, but hopefully you can do that. 
you can remind me which ones I missed. Of course. The if the reason that these implemented early warning scores differ so much is that there is has been no evidence base on which to base where the physiological thresholds should lie for escalation. In consequence, clinicians have made their best guess as to where those thresholds might lie and those that work leads to big differences. The pregnancy physiology pattern prediction study set out to work out what the normal ranges were for vital signs in modern pregnancy. So we recruited over a thousand women who very kindly gave us their vital sign readings all the way through pregnancy and for the first two weeks after delivery. What we found was that vital signs varied through pregnancy, but that that variation was quite different to what people had been commonly taught and that there were quite significant variations between the end of pregnancy and the early postpartum period. And those changes have been used in this new score we're proposing. Particularly using so many women and then providing such detailed data for us allows us to have secure knowledge of where the normal ranges for each vital sign are and therefore particularly when a woman is starting to become abnormal. I think that's quite a big change in thinking in comparison to other early warning scores because as you were saying previously Tony we want to pick up people early so our thinking is that we will flag to the clinicians when a woman has reached the limit of normality for their vital signs rather than when they are extremely abnormal and that's the basis on which we've created the new early warning score. So that's really, really helpful. And I, I hope everyone would be very encouraged by the fact that for once we're actually basing this on data rather than, as you say, unfortunately trying to make our best guess. I, I wanted to reflect on a conversation we had early on, which was the way that people have over-engineered a number of these tools and tried to include a, a number of subjective as well as objective factors into it when sort of producing these tools. I wonder whether you'd briefly just be able to talk to why that probably isn't helpful and why we've only really included the physiological parameters in the score that's calculated. The advantage of using the physiological parameters is that you have strong evidence for when a woman is starting to become abnormal because they're leaving normal ranges which we know from multi a multi-centre study of women in this country. As soon as you move to some of the other more subjective measures, you have no evidence for including those and they have quite an impact on how your score would perform, particularly if you're having an aggregate score, which I'll talk a little about. It's shown in other early warning scores outside maternity that it's better to have an aggregate score than it is to have the single that to score solely on a single variable like heart rate or to have what's common in maternal early warning scores of having two yellows or a red or 
one of those type of alerting system. So an aggregate score means that you apply a numerical value to each vital sign and sum the numerical values to get an overall score. And those that way of doing early warning scores is shown to be better at differentiating well women from unwell women. So adding other variables that um, are quite common in the vital science score, the early warning scores that people use throughout the country, means that you then have to add a value to those other variables and you have no idea what value to add and adding that value distracts from the evidenced values that you can get from the physiological variables. That's really helpful. I mean, I, I suppose it'd be important at this point just to, to mention that we're not suggesting that those other more subjective elements of the score aren't vitally important to the way that we work. Um, I think that's and, important. Yeah, they have great value. And it's true of all early warning scores that the clinician by the bedside adds value to the, to, to the early warning score. And they should always be seen in that light. The problem comes when you try and numerically code that, add, that added value and that, and that I don't think is helpful. Um, we're planning very much to discuss this sort of the more operational uh, or operationalization of this of this this tool and pathway in the next podcast. So I think we can talk more about the way in which those elements of healthcare professional concern, the mother's concern, will allow escalation to occur more timely, regardless of total scores, which I think is 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 vital because this is very much not just a physiological process, but something that's cultural about the way that we raise escalation. But we will address that another time. I suppose what I wanted to draw you both back into the conversation now and talk about was we've hopefully now got a, a tool that's based on physiology that's been constructed well. It's got a solid evidence base behind it. What do you both see as the sort of the key opportunities from this new tool? And I, I suppose maybe if I could just start this off thinking about was what are the advantages of this standardization and how maybe do we have the opportunity to even potentially validate this new tool in a way that hasn't been done before? Marion, do you want to go first? Yeah, so so one of one of the questions we were we were thinking about earlier when when planning this podcast was was well, can we assess the scale of the problem? You know, how many women are deteriorating? And and we simply don't have that answer. Whereas using this standard tool, you know, we will have that answer. So, you know, it, it will enable us to, to plan our teaching, to, uh, to, to plan our training from that point of view. It, it means that, you know, when we move a staff from unit to unit, we will be doing the same thing. You know, we mentioned the, the challenge in, in variation in the early warning score tools that were being used you know if you if you're using a totally different one in 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 a unit that you move to uh, your responses will be very different um and we will be able to to uh, to validate to check whether our actions our escalations are indeed uh, preventing those more severe uh, morbidities and and uh, you know um recognize that 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 we're enabling earlier recognition of of deterioration uh, for me the other huge advantage of this is that it's not it's not disease specific 
uh, we talked about some of the added measures that that people have been adding into early warning schools. But, you know, we we know that the leading cause of maternal death is actually cardiovascular disease and 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 not recognising when when women's breathlessness or indeed tachycardia is abnormal can be part of the recognition process for, for cardiovascular disease. So so by using this score, it will enable us to detect that early deterioration across a very wide range of conditions and not perhaps just hemorrhage uh, and, and potentially preeclampsia, which is what we focus on on, on delivery suites or on antenatal wards. And that added van, uh, huge advantage that you mentioned earlier of it being able to be used throughout a, a pregnant woman's care pathway, whichever um, part of the hospital she's cared for. Thank you. I, mean, I think they're, they're all, you know, I think that's the, the centre of this really for me is just reducing that unwarranted clinical variation. The standardisation allows everyone to feel comfortable using the same tool, whichever healthcare setting we're in, in a, any given hospital, but also moving, as you say, as most of our um, junior staff will do, we'll move between a number of hospitals. So I think that's key. Peter, any thoughts from your point of view around the standardisation and also maybe drawing on your experience as an intensivist and thinking about the interface with when pregnant women are outside of maternity units and we're using, you know, news in the non-pregnant population and news here. Do you, do you see any advantages of what we're doing with this standardisation in, in that regard? I think it will be really helpful to have a common language which this should deliver because everyone will be using the same tool. Because we've set it up to follow a numerical alerting system, it also means that it follows a way of working that is common outside maternity and so um, intensive care trainees will recognise even though they relatively seldom see women in maternity who are critically unwell. Uh, and I think some of, you know, obviously, I think that is going to be really important and maybe important also to say at this point that we, we can't in any way get read across between uh, a total scoring in on a news chart and a total score in a news chart because of the very differing populations that we have and the you know the different outcomes of people so when people see the tool once it's in you know sort of more wider circulation they'll see that we've got defined cutoffs where we move from no escalation to escalation to more junior members of the team up to you know more significant escalation with total scores but they don't read across between news and news because um, I think you were telling me once that a, that a new score of five or six had quite a significant mortality associated with it, which we wouldn't be expecting with, with scores in the maternity scores. Um, yes, a key difference between the way in which you can create a maternal early warning score and early warning scores outside maternity is that you've got a very different rate of serious events like mortality. And fundamentally, what we're trying to do with this tool is to move away from that sort of event alone and really concentrate on reducing morbidity for women by getting to deterioration early by thinking about 
women having reached the limit of being normal rather than being extremely unstable. And I think that's a really key point to keep focused on in this. We are aiming to do something fundamentally different. Thank you. So, um, great opportunities. And, I, and you know, I think hopefully people will see the advantage of what we're trying to do. But this isn't going to be plain sailing. Um, I think we've got some significant challenges as we move forward. Um, from my perspective, you know, my the main thrust of what I am involved with within my current role is is really understanding the sort of human and cultural aspects of this pathway and what you know the challenges that we're going to see there. I think the identification of these women in a timely fashion with a standardised approach is going to be hugely advantageous. But one of the things we're really going to have to understand better is once we've identified the women, is how we ensure that escalation occurs in a timely and an effective way. And I'm sure Marion has got lots of examples of when this hasn't happened in some of the cases that she's seen. And certainly this work is the problems we have with escalation are not restricted to the deterioration of the mother. We see them with the newborn and particularly in response to fetal monitoring in labour. So I think that's going to be one of the key issues. And I don't I think we've got to make sure that the narrative that we introduce to the system is that this isn't just about the tool. This has to be about a a wider pathway and we'll be talking a lot about the framework that we uh, that's used across all of the deterioration work in NHSEI which is peer so this idea that P to get ahead of the problem understand some prediction some prevention even and preparing for what might happen the I is the identification which we're focusing on here and then the E the escalation and R for response are going to be absolutely critical so I think those are going to be real real challenges for us ahead um, but I wondered whether there were other challenges that you both thought might be, you know, we probably should be thinking about uh, as we move forward with this work. I guess just to, to, to pick up on what you what you've mentioned, you know, the fact that one of the recommendations we had to make in Embrace was was don't just measure a woman's score, but do something about it. It emphasises that that point that you've actually made that 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 people shouldn't go away from from this podcast thinking, well, you know, this is just something I need to use to 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 measure a woman's vital signs. It's it's actually the response to that that is is crucially important. Um, thinking on the positives, you know, that this this is another feature that we often um, identify is that. Uh, uh, late involvement of senior staff. You know, this is a really enabling tool to actually get over those human factors. You know, we all struggle with, with oh, should we or shouldn't we call our senior? Actually, you know, we've got, and, and I'm sure you'll come to this um, with, the, with your next podcast, we've got a really good opportunity here to actually address those human factors. And, and there's, there's a real structure to be able to, to know when to call a senior, to know who to call at, at which level, depending on uh, on the deterioration. Um, I think we will have some challenges about, um, you know, in a, in a, you know, enabling it in different units. We we all have different electronic systems, um, and indeed some places don't have uh, electronic systems yet. So, so there will be challenges. Um, it, it won't be something that we can all just uh, implement tomorrow, 
but I think, you know, thinking about those implementation challenges, we should think about the opportunities uh, and, and and work out that, that it is it's something worth investing the time in uh, because of those opportunities. You, you mentioned digitalization there, and I think, again, would be something useful to me. I mean, I'm interested to hear what Pete has to say about this particularly because, uh, you know, the, the, the degree of digitalization in this space is relatively limited. I think the recent digital maturity survey that um, NHS Digital did um, showed that there is quite patchy use of electronic capture of, of observations. There's quite uh, varied use of um, electronic systems in place. Uh, and I think one of the challenges that we are going to have is ensuring that the digitalization of this tool is standardized across the country. Um, there is a, a refresh that's going to happen of the national digital record. I always get the, the wording slightly wrong there. Um, but the idea is that that would allow that to be standardized for all providers, um, which I think will be absolutely key. Um, but I just wondered, Peter, if you, do, do you think that the digitalization side of things is going to afford opportunity or, or, or potential challenge? So there is a huge opportunity with digitalization done well, which is that it takes the vital signs recorded and the alerts that occur away from the bedside and simply the clinician who undertook those observations and can make it visible to your whole unit or the whole hospital. And that creates an opportunity for safety that would be great to get hold of. Equally, digitization done badly can result in vital signs and alerts that are hidden from everyone. And so concentrating on um, making sure as we digitize that we retain the advantages of paper and the display and the easy accessibility um, of, a, of a paper chart, but also gain the ability to reflect that information wherever it might be needed. It creates an enormous opportunity. And as far as moving, I suppose, the next stage on, and I know we've spoken about this before, is at the moment, I think most of us see the digitalization process as really taking a paper chart where we're, you know, we're recording observations and it calculates a score for us into a digital forum. Whereas, in fact, there's another opportunity there as we move forward, I suspect, in that we can build in not just the alerting, but actually some decision support for those clinicians. And presumably we can move away from thresholds and actually have real time monitoring of all of those vital signs um, to look for trends. So is that something that you think is, is a reality in the next few years as well? Yes, I think as a future step, that's, those things are exactly where you would want to go in an evidenced fashion. This first step of getting everyone used to the same thresholds, um, the same methods of escalation um, is absolutely key in that. I think before we produce more advanced systems, particularly because as you and Marion were saying before, there's a step change to make in how we work clinically to move away from patient isn't critically unwell, so I don't need to call anyone, to 
the patient is becoming unwell, so we need to deal with it now so they never become critically unwell. And in so doing, we will um, have a better system for the women involved, as well as a more, a more efficient system for us as clinicians. Yes, I think I'm, my enthusiasm for what's possible, I think I've got to, uh, to to measure a little bit as we move forward, which I think is key. I think all the points you've raised there are, are vital. And I, I know there is some trepidation about this issue of over alerting and therefore leading to alert fatigue, which, I, you know, is, is a reality in many ways. But I'm encouraged by some of the modelling that I know we've already done along the way here, which I think um, should be published you know, over the coming months, which does show us already with the data that we've got that this tool in the way that it's set up has a lower false positive rate than most of the, the tools that are already in circulation. So I think it's a lot of this is going to be how we embed this tool and how we gain confidence with the clinical teams about the way it's functioning. Um, we're currently doing some early sort of along uh, some early testing with old cases and then plan to do some alongside testing before we move into sort of wider adoption and spread of the tools. So we're doing all this carefully so that we don't lose the, the confidence of the clinical community. And But I, I mean, I'm genuinely very excited and very confident about what we should be able to achieve in the coming years. I think the opportunity to evaluate this is going to be amazing. Um, so I think that would be really useful. Um, I just wonder if I could just turn to both of you now, maybe just with some closing remarks before we wind this up. But I'm just very grateful for for your uh, your time and your expertise as always. So, Marion, anything you wanted to add at the end? Um, so, so the the other you know huge opportunity we we worry immensely about staffing. You know, th this will tell us exactly how much of a problem we've got to be able to to think about think even with even more nuance uh, about staffing levels and it's only going to become more important because we know that the maternity population is becoming more complex more women are uh, becoming pregnant who've got pre-existing medical problems in whom uh, you know deterioration is is potentially even more uh, even more likely but also even more significant so I do think it's definitely worth the the effort uh, at, at this point and you know for me as a, a lead for investigation in maternal deaths it, it, it really has uh, the, the potential to actually make a substantial difference uh, unlike many of the initiatives that, that we've seen uh, over the past few years. Thank you I think that point about staffing is, is really really important and I, and I think uh, key probably important at this point to highlight that we've been working within this group with other stakeholders, including the Intensive Care Society um, and anaesthetic groups to make sure that actually we're thinking about this as broadly as we can and the implications that uh, and the way that we look after these women, you know, needs to be to be sort of factored in uh, to the whole hospital setup. A any closing remarks from you, Peter? I've been really excited to be involved in this project, I think particularly because of the care and meticulous way in which each aspect of picking up a woman starting to become unwell, making sure they get the best care has been thought about. And the way in which we've done that as a group and checked what we're doing methodically, I think should give clinicians moving forward reassurance that 
this is a system that they should be excited to take part in implementing into their hospital. And as you say, I, I think part of that reassurance should come from the very wide range of skills that have been brought to bear to bring this to fruition. Well, thank you. And I think that's probably an extremely good point at which we should wrap this first podcast up. I hope everyone's enjoyed listening to this to understand the background and our journey so far. And hopefully you'll join us for the second one uh, where we'll talk a little bit more about the operationalization of this tool and this pathway as we move forward. But anyway, thank you very much for listening and thank you to Marin and Peter for their time.